Who controls the world? We might all shout out different answers together. I won't worry about doing that today. But um, maybe some answers you might hear. The Freemasons, the Illuminati, George Soros, the World Economic Forum. A man by the name of James Gladfelder gave a TED Talk. Those are those YouTube uh, expert talks. Um, uh, and he gave a TED Talk. It was probably about a decade old. And he asked the question, who controls the world? And his answer was summarizing some economic research that had been done by examining the flow of money across international borders. And the findings discovered that over 600,000 investors behind major financial institutions ultimately determined the majority of cash flow in the world. But as they looked closer, they found that only about 737 of those 600,000 shareholders, 737 of them controlled 80% of the cash flow. In other words, 0.1% of these investors controlled about 80% of the flow of money in their test case. And from this, he made two applications. Number one, the world now lives in a high degree of international economic dependence on these few players, uh, which means we could be at high risk for financial collapse, for it only takes a few failures of some of those shareholders among those top players to create some sort. You think of like a highly connected um, um, body, for example, a disease gets in, it can spread rapidly in the same way. If a highly dependent financial network is dependent on a few shareholders, a couple of them get poisoned, then it trickles down. So we might be in a high degree of, uh, or a high risk for financial collapse. But the more important point that he was making was that global control is an emergent property, not a top-down one. In other words, as these few players acquired wealth, they acquired influence. In other words, there's no secret organization at the top. Um, but today, Matthew contends that financial influence is not what controls the world. To see where we're going, you can look at your sermon handout, and you can look at the top of this handout, and I want you to see Matthew's thesis, or what I think is the, the great reveal in his gospel. And the great reveal is the conclusion of his book, is the resurrected man that we're meeting today is standing on top of a mountain, and he says... All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Translation, Jesus says on top of the mountain Galilee, I am ruler of the cosmos. Christ declares his kingship. All authority is his. Well, Matthew's point at the end of the gospel is that it is Jesus who rules the world. He is God's global king. He is God's international ruler. And today, as we get to the climax of the Advent season, we're going to look at this genealogy, which is an introduction to Jesus' birth, to explain why Matthew thinks Jesus is not only the rightful ruler of the universe, he is the one who rules the universe. 
Let's zoom out and look at what we've done over the last four weeks together. Uh, This Advent season, we have been looking at what we have called birth stories. And what these birth stories show us is not merely what some would call predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. It's the idea somebody speaks something that's going to happen years in the future and it comes across, um, that, or it, it does come to pass. That's predictive prophecy, and there are uh, examples of that in the Old Testament. But the reason we're looking at these birth stories is because much of the prophecy of the Old Testament is actually patterns. In other words, the, it's not only predictive prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. It's actually the same repeating pattern that we see swelling over and over until it actually climaxes in the arrival of Jesus. If you'll remember, we started in Psalm 8, where Jesus, or not Jesus, where David was reflecting on his defeat of Goliath. And he said, um, he said, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes, right? David is looking at himself and going, it doesn't make sense. I was a young boy and I defeated Goliath. Why did this happen? Well, this is God's pattern. That's how he does things. We saw that David's reflecting on Genesis 3.15. How is God going to reverse the curse that's come about because of the serpent? Well, he's going to send an offspring through the woman who would crush the serpent. David says, I'm one of those patterns. We saw from Romans 4, as Brother Mike shared with us, that Abraham's hope rested on his faith in God's promise that that offspring, that child, would come through Abraham's line. And then we saw from the life of Jacob that Jacob was the least likely candidate for God to use. And yet before Jacob was born, God said that Jacob would rule over Esau. And as we looked at Jacob's life, it doesn't make any sense. Jacob is the least qualified person to inherit the promises of God. And yet in God's sovereign guidance and pattern of history, Jacob, through his deception, in fact did become part of the line of promise. And we saw, as Nate shared with us last week, that in Ruth, Israel's greatest king, David, was born to a dead, cut-off family line because God will accomplish his purposes. There is a major pattern of unexpected uh, births in Scripture that are the ways in human history God has been bringing about his purposes. So today what we're going to do is we are looking at where all those patterns uh, arrive and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Technically, we're going to get to the birth next week. This Sunday, though, today, we're looking at the genealogy that essentially makes the case all of Israel's chaotic history has been God accomplishing his purposes to bring about this promised ruler into the world. That is... Jesus' arrival, as we celebrate it next Sunday, is happening according to God's plan. He comes as the fulfillment of both God's great promises and God's great patterns. Psalm 2, the nations are raging, God establishes his king on the throne. Psalm 2, Matthew says, has been fulfilled. God's king, by the end of Matthew's gospel, is in thrones. And to tell you why this matters this morning is this. Friends, you and I are not the subjects of a purposeless, out-of-control cosmos. You are the subjects of a creation run by a good king. 
I understand how hard it can be to forget that. Some of you have faced death head on in your loved ones. You've seen the effects of disease. Take away those you love. Maybe take your own body strength. You have suffered. You have grief. You've seen your own vileness. There are so much screaming at us that it seems as if reality is just the outworking of chaos, that there is no guider or ruling hand behind it all. The difficulties of the miseries and difficulties of our life can persuade us that all of the cosmos is purposeless. But if it really was purposeless, it would not matter to you to know that. We feel powerless against these realities, the the corruption that we face, the futility that the preacher in Ecclesiastes taught us about. Matthew writes, brothers and sisters, to declare to you this morning, Jesus is king. He stands before and over all. Now, looking at our passage, it is very clearly a genealogy, maybe some of the most feared passages of Scripture, right? And this makes sense that it would be a genealogy because Matthew is writing to Israel. He is writing that he might lead Israelites to trust Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. The genealogy, grammatically, structurally, does two things for Matthew. I think, number one, it provides an unbroken link between Jesus and Israel's founding patriarch, Abraham. Right? If the born king... If this born son is going to be relevant to Israel, he has to come from Abraham. So you see in verse 1, that's the third title that he's given. He's the son of Abraham. But it not only provides an unbroken link between Jesus and Abraham, it also provides an unbroken link between Jesus and Israel's royal line of David. So that's the second title that Matthew introduces in verse 1. It'd be a bit like going to Ancestry.com and you and I finding that our lineage goes back to Abraham Lincoln and to George Washington. Only genealogies were much more in the ancient world uh, than an attempt to anchor one's identity in human history. One's genealogy in Israel was a statement about one, where one belonged in the future. Do they have a right to the inheritance? Well, what's your genealogy? Do you, or can you be traced back to ethnic Israel? But Matthew's genealogy is perfectly crafted to show Israel that the figure they're about to meet is destined to be enthroned as their promised king. Matthew in this genealogy is making it unmistakable that this is Israel's long-awaited ruling king. And so with it, we're going to answer three questions. I think Matthew is showing us three things. Number one, who has arrived? Number two, where he came from? And number three, why does it matter? We're going to spend the rest of our time together answering those questions. Who has come? Who do we celebrate? Whose arrival are we celebrating this Advent season? Where did he come from? And why does it matter? So let's look at verse one, answer the question, who is here? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mentioned earlier that Matthew's gospel is written to Israelites. Israelites were people of Torah, right? The book of Moses, the the first five books of the Old Testament. 
And Matthew's gospel is structured around five major discourses. In other words, if an Israelite were to look at Matthew's gospel, they'd go, hey, that's framed very similarly to the book of Moses with these five major discourses. But verse 1 also gives us a major link to Torah, and it's in its introduction, the word, the book of the genealogy, or it could be translated, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so not only is Matthew structuring his gospel like Torah, he's essentially saying this is another book of Genesis. Uh, That is, he's linking it all the way back to the first book of Israel's Old Testament. And what Matthew is doing with that link there is I think he's saying Jesus is the continuation of Israel's history as it began long ago in your own Torah. To give you an example, uh, you know the song Heads Carolina, Tails California? I'm not going to sing it, uh, but I think it's probably 30 years old now. And in 2022, another artist uh, wrote a song called She Had Me at Heads Carolina. It's basically an ode to the original, but it's a different song uh, that sings very similarly. And the way that he starts the song is he plays the original and then transitions into his new song. And I think that's along the lines of what Matthew is doing literarily here. That's what the first line is, the beginning of the book of Genesis, of the beginning of Jesus Christ. Uh, And here now, Matthew gives us three titles. Who is Jesus? Well, he's not Jesus Christ as a surname. He is Jesus the Christ, that's his first title. He is Jesus, the son of David, and he is Jesus, the son of Abraham. So who's, whose arrival are we being prepared for? Whose arrival are we celebrating with these candles or, or, or with this uh, scene here? What are, we, what are we hoping in? Whose birth are we looking back to this season? It's a threefold answer, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who are they? Number one, the Christ. The Christ, as I said, is not Jesus' last name. It is a technical term for the figure that Israel was waiting for. It's their promised Savior. Uh, it's a term that refers to an end-time figure that God had promised to send to the earth. Messiah is how we transliterate the Hebrew. Christ is how we transliterate the Greek. They're the same. Christ, Messiah, uh, it's the same concept. And God promised the Messiah to Eve back in Genesis 3.15. It's that promise and pattern that we've been tracing over the last month. Israel's Savior is called the Messiah uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 26, and it's typically translated the anointed one. But I think the most clearest definition of who the Messiah is is in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel uh, receives a vision of the Messiah, and he writes this down. It says, Behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we read verse 1, and we see the, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
But what we should hear is Jesus is God's eternal, God's international, God's unstoppable ruler. That's what the word is communicating. God's eternal, God's international, God's unstoppable ruler. So when you read the word Jesus Christ, feel free to translate it in your mind and say, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, God's eternal, international, unstoppable king. So he's the Christ. He's not only the Christ, though, he's the son of David. This is the second title, and it's a bit strange that son of David is added first because who's first in the genealogy? Who's the first figure? Abraham. So you can see that Matthew feels the need to draw out the kingship of Christ by prioritizing David here. So the second title the Messiah is given, he's, he is the king of David or the son of David. This son of David was promised to the great David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, that our brother Mike read earlier this morning. Listen to 2 Samuel 7 verse 13. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the answer to the curse in Israel's mind is not only a Messiah, but a Messiah specifically who would come through the royal line of David. The Messiah's eternal kingdom is specifically David's royal kingdom. So not only is Jesus the Messiah, he is going to be the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. So what Matthew's saying is, Israel, this is your king. This is the long-awaited son of David. And so this is why Jesus, I think, is presented as an enthroned king at the end of Matthew 28. That's why he ascends. That's what the book of Hebrews says, what he ascends. He sits at the right hand of the Most High, fulfilling Psalm 110. And you see the emphasis. If you look down at verse 6, you notice how he stops at David after that first set of 14, and he specifically describes David as the king, right? So Matthew's trying to draw home to the Israelites, this is your king. He's your Messiah. He's your king. The long-awaited king of Israel, Israel's eternal royal line. And the third title he's given, not only is he the Messiah, the son of David, he is the son of Abraham. Abraham is the foundational patriarch of the nation of Israel. He was called to leave his family in Genesis chapter 12 after the famous curse at the Tower of Babel. The nations have been dispersed and confused. And so we begin to see God's redemptive plan unfold as he chooses this man, Abram. And in Genesis 22 verse 18, Abraham is promised that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, and Paul clarifies, this isn't about Abraham's multitude of offsprings, right? Listen to Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, quote, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Messiah, God's international, eternal, unstoppable king. So in this first verse, who has come? Who is Matthew bringing our attention to? He's saying to you and I, our creator has sent Jesus into the world 
who is God the Father's eternal, international, unstoppable ruler, heir of David, who will bring restoration to the nations. In other words, he's not just Israel's king. He's your king too. So we celebrate this season, humanity's savior through Israel has arrived. And I wonder if you know that. There is one who has come to save you. The narrative of the world is not that you are just losing and losing and losing and are just going to disappear into cosmic soup. The narrative of the world, human being, is that you have a creator and he has sent one for you in the person of Jesus. Why did he come? Why was he promised to Abraham? To bring blessing or flourishing to the nations. I don't mean to, to usher in financial prosperity. I think uh, in, in the realized kingdom, we will not be poor. But ultimately, what Jesus came to do is to bring you back to your creator. There is a savior for you, friend. He is an eternal, international, unstoppable ruler. He is the heir of David, the one who brings the blessing of Abraham. And friend, not only is Matthew telling you that he's here, he's come, he's telling you right now that he's the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth. The world is not ruled or run by those at Wall Street or by those in the White House or the United Nations or some secret organization. Israel's Davidic king, Abraham's long-awaited offspring, God's promised Messiah is the world's global ruler today. Now, where did he come from? Where did he come from is what verses 2 to 16 are answering. We should begin by realizing why this question is necessary. This question is necessary for one because as human beings, we tend to assume origin uh, ties down someone's destiny. If you come from no place special, there'll be little expectation from you, right? If we're just animals, you're simply going to remain animals. And if Jesus is just some obscure man from the ancient Near East, then we should expect nothing more from him. But what if the poverty of Christ's origins tells us why we should believe he is God's king? Let me ask that again. What if the poverty of Christ's origins actually tells us why we should see he is God's appointed ruler of the earth? Your genealogy is depicted visually through this funny-looking N on your handout that you can't read. All you need to get from that is that N is the shape of the genealogy. This genealogy does three things. If you look down at verse 17, the genealogy is three sets of 14. And those three sets end in events because the events are showing you what happened to the kingdom of David. And so the kingdom of David starts in Abram and goes up to the arrival of David. And then from David, we're going to see that it descends all the way down to a deportation uh, to Babylon. And then from a deportation to Babylon, we're going to see the return of the kingdom of David with the birth of Christ. So we begin verses 2 to 6, the rise of the house of David. Matthew wants you to ask this. Church, you need to ask this. How did David's kingdom come about? It started with Abram. 
It started with Abram. That's absurd. How did a Babylonian from Ur result in the establishment of David and his kingdom? That's what he's saying there. Abram is the strangest person in the world from the kingdom of God to come through. As Paul says in Romans, when Abram was called, he was what? Uncircumcised. He wasn't a faithful man at the time. He, his offspring or his family were Chaldeans from the city of Ur. He was from, essentially, one of Israel's greatest enemies. How did David come from Abram? But the genealogy doesn't get any better. We saw from the story of Jacob that not only was he the second born, meaning he was disqualified from the inheritance, he shouldn't be in the line of promise, he manipulated and deceived his older brother, yet, as God had planned, he acquired the blessing. This is insane. It gets worse. Where did Perez come from? His father, Judah? Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what did Judah do? Well, he went to a prostitute and he had a child with her. Turns out the prostitute was his daughter-in-law. And in that grievous sin, the line of promise continued. You're familiar with Rahab? She was a Canaanite whom Israel was, was called to destroy, but by faith she uh, welcomed the spies and hid them. And in, as a Canaanite prostitute, Zalman fathered through her, Ob I'm sorry, uh, Boaz, is what would lead to the birth of Boaz, who would redeem Ruth and give birth to David's grandfather, Obed. And I wonder if you see the pattern. In one sense... An Israelite would read these names and they would be so thrilled because these names are familiar. This is, this is the kingdom of Israel being built. But if you examine each of these stories in detail, it's like saying the kingdom of David emerged from a Jerry Springer episode. I don't mean to make light of it. It is so atrocious, the events that are represented by those names. In other words, the bricks that lead to the arrival of the kingdom of David don't make any sense. The Boy Scouts famously host their boxcar racer competition and they give an award. It's called the Nuts and Bolts Award. Do you know what the Nuts and Bolts Award is? Does anybody know what that is? I do because I won it. Uh, and it, what it means is your car, the entire set of races, they thought for sure was going to fall apart. It did not look like it was going to belong on the track. And somehow it made it, so congratulations. And that's what this genealogy is saying. If you're looking at these names and these lines and these events, it does not seem like the sort of people that are going to establish an empire. But that's exactly what happened, is what he's saying in those first 14. Because God accomplished his purposes. How did God end up with a temple in the middle of the promised land of Canaan? Well, it's because he's God. It's not because these people were worthy. And it only gets worse, right? From verse 6 to verse 11, we move from the height of the Davidic empire to its saddened collapse. David would see the beauty of Bathsheba from his balcony. He'd arrange for her husband, Uriah, a faithful soldier, to be placed on the front line of battle, to be killed. And David would then take his faithful soldier's wife for his own. 
And that adulterous marriage, that Psalm 51 so laments the adultery there, would eventually result in the fulfillment of God's promise to David, his immediate fulfillment with the arrival of Solomon. Solomon would be that great Davidic king that built the house of the Lord. And he was filled with all wisdom. And in all his wisdom, he had 700 wives. And with those 700 wives, he became a worshiper of false gods. His son Rehoboam would help to split David's kingdom in half. And it just goes on and on. Time would not permit for us to weep over the atrocities through the list of kings in this genealogy. I think the only king, and I may be wrong about this, but I think the only king in that the scriptures are entirely positive about is Josiah and his reforms. But the rest, in some way, they're described. Um, some are partially good, um, but all have led to the collapse of the kingdom of David. In other words, you get this first 14 generations and you're thrilled to see how God established the kingdom of David. But then you get to the second 14 and you weep. My goodness, how much we ruined this second Eden is what an Israelite would hear. The promised kingdom of David, rightly demolished and taken to Babylon. It's forgotten. It's in darkness, cursed, exiled from the land of promise. And I think the emphasis on the deportation here is to connect with the Israelites reading this going, man, we feel in a similar place. We're under Roman rule. We're still exiles. Because what Matthew wants to do is he wants to show them, remember what happens when we're in exile. Remember what happens when we're nobodies. Because he's about to show from exile their great Davidic Messiah is born. So you have the return of the house of David in verses 12 to 16. This is the upper leg of the N. And if you look at these names here, we really only know two of the names on the list. We know Jeconiah and Zerubbabel, his grandson, who was the governor over uh, the return to exiles. In other words, the rest of these names are entirely forgotten to human history. And I think what Matthew's point is, when God established the kingdom of David, he did it through a nobody, Abram. And the kingdom of David ended up getting demolished. And from the rubbles of David's demolished empire, bam, God's king shines forth. From nobody to David, returned to nobody, the greater David. He's finally arrived. This isn't some happenstance this is happening just like it did before. And you need to see this connection here. Matthew's making the argument from the pattern of biblical history, not merely the prediction. You, flip, you can look over at Matthew 2, verse 15 for a moment, and I'll show you what I mean. In Matthew 2, verse 15, it says, And they remained there until the death of Herod... This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That text in Hosea is not a prediction. It wasn't a statement about when Jesus would come. It was looking back to how God had delivered Israel from Egypt. 
So Matthew isn't saying Jesus merely fulfilled predictive prophecy from way back then. Matthew's saying what happened way back then is happening more fully and finally in Jesus. Israel was the pattern, Jesus the reality. Jesus is not only predicted by the Old Testament, it's Jesus is the Old Testament is patterned after Jesus. The time is finally coming. So Israel's Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, has come, just as the first David did, out of the mouths of babes, God has established strength once again. The genealogy is saying that as Babel collapsed, God began to fill his promise to Eve by raising up an offspring that resulted in the kingdom of David. But in the rubble of David's collapsed empire, like Babel, God has brought forth his final promised king. Jesus' birth was no accident, friends. There's just countless documents from Israel's history pointing to this day, both in pattern and in prediction. History is guided. The technical word is teleological, teleos meaning goal-oriented. It's being brought to completion, right? Remember, tetelestai comes from that word. It is finished. It is going somewhere. Jesus' arrival is bringing it to its consummated end. So why does this matter? We'll look at verse 17 for a moment. I think there are two dangers in reading this genealogy. Number one... I think we can read this and forget that if our names were included on this list, it wouldn't improve, would it? We forget these people really represent people like you and me. Our stories, if fully exposed to everyone here, if we were included in the line of promise, we would be just as much a stain as everybody else on there. Secondly, we miss the fact that the genealogies intend to tell us about God. It's not there just to reveal that we can't read good, right? The genealogies are there to make much of God. We have felt the rubble of the cursed world that we live in, haven't we? And we might be tempted to think there is no one in charge of this world. But others here might be tempted to say... Who would want a world like this? Matthew, with this genealogy, is saying, God still does. God is coming to fulfill his promises to this cursed and corrupted world. What God said to Eve, what God said to Abram, to David, it is coming to pass because you can trust God's promises. That's the point of the genealogy. The mess God used to bring the Messiah, and the Messiah has come for his messy people. Verse 17 explains Matthew's genealogy is very deliberate. He points out that it's three sets of 14 generations. 14 is the numeric value of, of David's Hebrew name. In other words, by pointing out three sets of 14, Matthew is drawing our attention to the Hebrew understanding of the number seven, which would have meant completion. And so you have not only three sets of 14, you have six sets 
of completion, but there isn't a seventh because the arrival of Jesus inaugurates the seventh. And what I mean by that is what I think Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, as God planned, God sent forth his sons. The sixes can consummate in the arrival of Jesus, and there's not going to be another because the Messiah, the ruler of the creation, has finally arrived. The idea of fullness of the seventh seven means Christ's arrival is the purpose of all things. And what's that purpose down in verse 21? Look at it with me. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, technically it means God saves. And why will that be his name, Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. God wants this world, friends. God does not tell you about sin because he hates you. God does not want you to fix your eyes on Jesus because he hates you. God has sent Jesus as the great eternal Davidic king to be the blessing of Abraham to us all, to bring restoration chiefly to bring us to God as he swore to do through Israel. So I wonder, friend, do you understand the point of human history this morning? Do you see through your sin to the work of Christ? Do you see through your suffering the arrival, the first arrival of Christ and the guaranteed second arrival of Christ still to come? No one other than God's eternal, international, unstoppable ruler, heir of David, blessing of Abraham is worth living for. No one other than him. He is the purpose of all time, and he has come to redeem you, friends, from your sin. There is one who controls the world. And so I wonder if you get why Matthew starts this way. He doesn't want you to go home at lunch and go, okay, that's a cool genealogy, I learned a few things. He wants you to get to the end of his gospel. This figure is fully qualified to be all that Israel's Old Testament said he would be because Matthew wants you to realize he does in fact now have all authority in heaven and on earth. Church, you're not a people without a ruler. Your security doesn't rest on whoever is currently in the White House. Your security does not rest in the diagnosis that you get from your doctor. Your security is not threatened by the fact that you will die. Your loved ones who know Christ are not threatened by the fact that they have died because Christ died and rose. He's already defeated death because he's in charge of it all. You know the one who controls the universe, church. And so I want to close with a few questions. Do you expect him still to be reigning now? Do you and I still expect sinners to be brought to repentance? Do we expect grace to transform hardened, unbelieving hearts anymore? Do we expect our family worship, as dull as it may seem or as chaotic as it may seem, to actually work in preserving our children to know the Lord? 
Do we expect Christ to use our struggling efforts of hospitality in our community for the sake of his name? I wonder, friend, I wonder, brother, sister, do you realize Christ will redeem you from this mess that you are in? Jesus is king, brothers and sisters. That's why he came, to make for himself a people. So press on. He's already saved you from your sin. Look to him to carry you as you serve him until his second coming. You, church, have a king, so expect him to reign. Let's pray.